Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Thank you all for coming to the 39th annual David B. Kaner Memorial Lecture. I think the first important thing to do today would be to introduce Mrs. Marjorie Long, who is the widow of David Kaner. So could you please just wave hi to everybody? I think we'd all like to see you. Thank you, Mrs. Long. Um, she is really a strong supporter of keeping um, her late husband's legacy alive. And um, we love having her come to this lecture annually. And we love hearing stories about um, David. And um, I think it's important to remember that we have a nice lunch to go along with Grand Rounds because um, she knows from the past how important it is to keep clinicians well fed during lots of hard work and long hours. And so we're really happy to be able to have lunch together and to enjoy our talk. Um, I just want to give everybody a little bit of background. I think many of you know this story. Um, this lectureship was established by the medical school in 1974 in memory of David Kaner um, by his loving family and his friends. We bring distinguished guests from the fields of surgery and oncology to speak to us every year, and hopefully it's a way to get us all together and to bring the community get together and for us to learn some new things about um, cancer. David Keener graduated summa cum laude from the University of Michigan, and he went on to get his medical degree from Wayne State University um, Medical School. And he started a, a surgical internship here at Mary Hitchcock Memorial Hospital in 1972. In October 1973, he was diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia, um, which he fought for the next 10 months. During that period of time when he was an intern, he applied for and was accepted into the ophthalmology residency at Mayo Clinic, which he was planning to go after he completed his time here. And unfortunately, after an all too long or all too short remission, he died in August of um, 1974. He lived a full life of 30 years, and I think one that was tragically short and one that is remembered by his gentle manner, concern for others, and commitment to his profession. So um, the Dartmouth Medical School, now the Geisel School of Medicine, um, is honored to have this memorial lecture in tribute to his memory. So um, for today's lecture, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ethan Bash. Dr. Bash is a professor of medicine, public health, and urology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also the vice chair of oncology there. He is a graduate of Brown University, Oxford University, Harvard Medical School, and the Harvard School of Public Health. He did his internship and residency training at the Massachusetts General Hospital and went on to do his oncology fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He was recruited to stay on at Memorial Sloan Kettering after that, and he was a staff physician and researcher there for a long time. In um, 2012, he was recruited to UNC to specialize in GU medical oncology as well as to be a health services researcher there. By all accounts, he has been phenomenally successful in this regard. He has over $25 million in funding as either a principal investigator or a co-investigator um, from PCORI, the NIH, the Department of Defense, and the American Cancer Society. This is active work, and I'm so pleased that he'll be able to share some of that with us today. He has over 200 papers and book chapters and still going at an enormously prolific rate. He's an associate editor at JAMA 
And um, I think importantly, just a really great person and a leader in his field. I'm so excited that he'll talk to us about something that he is really an international leader in, which is patient-reported outcomes. So, Ethan, without um, any further ado, I think everybody's looking forward to hearing from you and not from me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sandra, for the invitation to be here today. It's really it's quite an honor. And I would just say briefly before I, I start, uh, it was a very gracious introduction, and the feeling is very uh, mutual. So thank you. I've uh, followed you and your career admiringly for many years, and it's, it's very nice to be here and see you today. I also wanted to acknowledge Marjorie Long, who first wrote me a, a beautiful letter about David. Um, and, uh, and we had a chance to sit down today and speak a little bit about uh, his legacy and about this lectureship, and that was uh, very meaningful. And <clears throat> just to echo, <coughs> excuse me, some of Sandra's words, I just wanted to take a moment to, to speak about uh, the memory of, of David Kaner, who I've been learning about uh, from Marjorie and from others today. Um, as Sandra noted, he grew up in Massachusetts and he studied English and art history at Michigan, so he was a, a humanities major, um, and then uh, attended medical school and then began his surgical internship here in the early 1970s, as Sandra mentioned. And shortly thereafter, unfortunately, he was diagnosed with leukemia and died the, the following year. Um, and uh, I heard from Marjorie, but also uh, from uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, Hal Socks, who many of you may know. He was the editor uh, of Annals of Internal Medicine for many years and was chief medical resident here uh, when David was here. Um, after all these years, Hal had such glowing uh, remembrances about David, and uh, both uh, he and his wife noted that he really wanted to focus on living with dignity and honor and to live life to its fullest each day, uh, and that he really tried to uphold values around being a gentle and empathetic person, remaining committed, and, and being very compassionate about uh, what he was doing. And, and I, I feel, personally, it's, it's suitable to discuss today an area uh, that's emerging in, in healthcare delivery around engaging patients in their own care and bringing the, vo the patient voice uh, into care. It seems to be very harmonious with uh, David's legacy. Uh, these are my disclosures. So I'd like to start with this slide. Uh, this slide shows a website at the National Cancer Institute uh, that uh, posts a new measurement tool or questionnaire called the PRO-CTCAE, or the Patient Reported Outcomes Version, of the common terminology criteria for adverse events. That's a mouthful. But essentially, this is a patient-reported toxicity measurement system for use in oncology. Um, and this uh, was publicly released almost exactly a, a year uh, ago today, actually April 1st last year. Um, and I, I want to start with this, which is sort of the end of the story that I'm going to tell you today, which is essentially a story of how this came to be and why uh, I feel this is meaningful uh, um, to uh, patient care in oncology. And uh, when this was released, uh, there uh, was a fair amount of impact, particularly in the drug development world. Uh, this is a paper that was written by leadership at FDA Oncology, uh, essentially laying out that it is a growing expectation at the FDA that this tool should be integrated across all oncology drug development, such that the patient viewpoint will play a role 
in, uh, in discovery and oncology. And then uh, just to underline, this is from the pink sheet, which is sort of the National Enquirer of uh, Drug Regulatory Policy. Uh, where uh, they've actually had a number of pieces on the tool, um, sort of laying out a path for how patient-reported tools can best be integrated into drug development in order to really understand the patient experience of the products that we're developing and disseminating. And I'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, and this sort of, you know, illustrates the journey that many of us who are in, in research or in healthcare delivery take. I'm a health services researcher. Uh, as well as an oncologist, so you know, when I sit down with faculty, I often think about this continuum, and so uh, I like to think of things in this way, which is, you know, you start by noticing a problem, and you go down this whole continuum, and then finally you get this sort of the implementation dissemination point, which is where I'm at now, but you know, all this other sausage making back here is really where a lot of the action is. Not that implementation isn't, that's very challenging too. And usually this is more than a straight line. I sometimes show a slide where you know, you have this sort of this arrow that's going in all kinds of directions, uh, and I think that that's probably uh, more accurate, but you know, at, at the end of the story, you like to tell it as if it's a straight line. So for me in the story today, the problem uh, that, uh, you know, that, that I noticed many years ago is shown here, which we sometimes call the straight line phenomenon, and it goes like this, you know, Mrs. Jones comes in, uh, to the office and uh, she's getting chemotherapy, for example, and I stand at the door and I look at Mrs. Jones and I think she, you know, looks pretty okay. And I say, hey, Mrs. Jones, you're looking good today. And then I note in the chart, you know, straight down the line, Mrs. Jones is doing great. And then I move on to talk about scan results or plans for, you know, chemotherapy or whatever without really any detailed interrogation of really what's going on with the patient in, in some granularity. And I use myself as an example because as uh, as an oncologist, I, like many of my colleagues, is subject to this. It's a sort of a, a human foible, which is that we make judgments and we don't necessarily get into detail about the experiences of other people. But the downstream consequence of this can be quite profound. I use this as an example. This is taken directly from the drug label for, uh, for docetaxel or taxotere. It's a commonly used cytotoxic chemotherapy in oncology. I use this drug frequently. Uh, and these tables come directly from what we call the pivotal trials, the, the fit of large phase three trials or, uh, or increasingly single arm trials that are used to uh, approve drugs. And what we see here are a number of different adverse reactions and we see the cumulative incidence in the pivotal trial of any uh, degree of that particular toxicity and then we see the more severe in the next column, the grade threes and fours. And, to me, what's interesting here is that I don't know if you can see the shading, but more than half of these are what I might call a symptom, right? They're highly subjective experiences that patients have. They're things like, uh, like nausea or sensory neuropathy or fatigue or, uh, or dysphagia. Uh, they're very difficult for another person to understand if not explained in, in detail. And yet, this is the toxicity information that we have. And, this information is not reported directly by patients. This is reported by clinicians who, like me or my colleagues standing at the door eyeballing our patients, might make snap judgments. And as a result, the kinds of data that we generate may not truly capture the patient experience, in this case with toxicities. And the potential downstream consequence of this is that we, we may underestimate 
the impact of these products on our patients. And so when we balance benefits and harms of treatments, we may have an underestimation of the true harms. We may therefore uh, inappropriately overweight the benefits and downplay the harms that we don't know about. And we therefore may be recommending toxic treatments to people without truly understanding the toxicities. And there are many examples of oncology drug products that have hit the market and they turn out to be much more toxic than we anticipated for this very reason. So again, as a researcher, this prompted a number of questions uh, early in my career. The first is, does clinician symptom monitoring adequately capture the patient experience? And if not, how might this impact clinical trial data and how might it impact clinical care? And then finally, are there alternative approaches that can improve the measurement of the patient experience and therefore improve outcomes? And so I will go through all of these over the next half hour or so. So first of all, I think it's important to take a moment to acknowledge how in oncology we actually measure symptoms. We actually have a very well delineated system for assessing symptoms in oncology called the CTCAE, which is essentially the longstanding clinician version of what I showed you on that first slide, which is now the patient version of this. But the CTCAE for many years has been maintained by the National Cancer Institute as a standard lexicon for reporting toxicities. There are almost 800 discrete toxicities. It has a very broad range of toxicities, anywhere from a symptom like nausea to something very uh, observable or objective like malignant hypertension or retinal detachment. Um, so about 10% of these are symptoms. So about uh, about 80 of them or so, or so could be characterized as being symptoms. This is widely used in cancer research. It's mandated across uh, cancer clinical trials. Essentially, every clinical trial that we do in oncology includes the CTCAE. And down here is an example for those of you who are clinicians or investigators. This will be very familiar. This is a typical CTCAE item. This one is for mouth sores, oral mucositis. There are multiple grade levels showing magnitude, and these are anchored to discrete clinical phenomena. For example, grade two is moderate pain, not interfering with oral intake, and modified diet indicated. So a lot of different concepts, and we can unpackage this a little later, but it's actually kind of difficult to parse this out even for a clinician. But this is the law of the land. This is how we do it. So back in 2002, uh, I and uh, in a group that we were developing at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center developed an initial patient version that we called the STAR system, the symptom tracking and reporting system, that was a patient version of the CTCAE, thinking that, well, maybe it would be a little bit better if patients could report this themselves. We wonder what, you know, what would happen if we let patients report their own toxicities. And I put this up because this is our legacy software system. We built this in the early 2000s. The, uh, the financial software group at Sloan Kettering built this for us on the side. So they would build a little software and then the financial system would crash or the scheduling system would crash. They'd leave it for like three months and then come back to it. And this was sort of web 1.0. Uh, and we, we loaded this onto these old industrial tablet computers. It was all pre-iPad. And we would sort of take these, you know, tablets out into the waiting rooms and ask patients to complete it. Uh, but here's an example of the criteria, in this case, uh, for fatigue. 
And the first question that I was interested in was whether clinicians and patients actually agree with each other when it comes to uh, responding to questions about these symptom toxicities. Uh, because if we as clinicians did a good, pretty good job already, then we'd be done, right? My hypothesis was that maybe we were missing things, but, you know, we really didn't know. And so we did a study in which 400 patient-clinician pairs during chemotherapy answered the same CTCAE symptom questions at clinic visits, and we randomly assigned patients to uh, report before or after the clinicians. It turned out not to make a difference. And this is what we found, and I'll walk you through this. So each of these individual bars, each of these individual bars shows a discrete symptomatic toxicity. Across each bar, we see the level of agreement between the patient-clinician pairs. For example, for fatigue, there was 41% agreement. So 41% of the clinician-patient pairs agreed on the grading of fatigue. Over here is where the patients graded worse fatigue. Over here, where clinicians graded worse fatigue. Uh, and it goes down the symptoms. And there are a couple of interesting observations here. This is single-time point cross-sectional. First of all, the agreement's really not that great. I mean, 41% agreement between clinicians and patients isn't that good. It's a little better for very observable stuff, like diarrhea, where you're counting the number of stools, and it's also an uncommon event. Uh, but, you know, look, for dyspnea, 50% of the time, not as good as we might like. The other observation, though, is that these darker gray bars, where you start to see the divergence here, this is one point worse grading by the patients and two or more points worse grading, and it's a very compressed scale, right? It's only a four-point scale. You see that the bars, the darker bars are thicker over here than over here, right? They're barely existent over here, showing that in cases of disagreement, it's more common for the patients to report worse severity than the patients. So the patients are reporting worse stuff than their clinicians when you ask them side by side. So I became interested in the cumulative impact of this over time. So we took a cohort of about 800 patients and we followed them over time throughout their course of treatment and asked them and their clinicians to report on uh, this group of symptomatic toxicities. And this is what we found. Uh, we showed the cumulative incidence of each symptom reported by the patient in gold here and in blue uh, for the clinicians. And you can see that across the board, the cumulative incidence of each symptom is substantially and significantly higher when reported by the patients and the clinicians. So this, uh, this delta in here is the divide between what the patients and the clinicians are reporting. So there are two ways to think about this. One way to say is, oh my goodness, we as clinicians are missing a ton of stuff. But the other way to think of it, which is the way that many of my colleagues thought about it at the time, because it wasn't really an era of patient-centeredness at that time, was, you know, Ethan, it's well and good that you show this discrepancy, but really, we clinicians know best. We, uh, we really understand symptoms. You know, the patients, they understand their own trajectory, you know, but Mrs. Smith thinks that she really has fatigue. She should see Mr. Jones down the hall. That guy really has fatigue. And I, as the clinician, know best. I am bringing everybody to reality here. I'm recalibrating for the patients. And so, in fact, the gold standard should be blue rather than gold. So it's hard to contest that. So I started to think about, well, what's, you know, what's reality here? What's, what's the truth here? And so we did a whole series of studies 
in, uh, uh, I'd say, around 2004, 2005, where we started to anchor the clinician and the patient reports to a whole bunch of other underlying metrics. So we had people on treadmills, and you know, we had them use spirometers. Uh, and this was kind of a fun study we did, where we anchored the clinician and the patient reports to a, an underlying metric of, of health state. Uh, and I'll walk you through this one. So again, um, showing the patients in sort of an orangish gold and the clinicians in blue. Um, this is showing the strength of concordance of the patient reports and the clinician reports with an underlying third anchor uh, measuring health state. Uh, and what you can see is these orange bars are farther over to the right on the curve, showing stronger concordance with the underlying measure. So to the best of our ability, we sort of showed that because these orange uh, data points are farther to the right, having stronger concordance, that it looks like the patient reports are more highly concordant with underlying measures of health status or health state. And what's interesting is this is for individual symptoms, right? So you wouldn't expect that an individual symptom would correlate that highly. But in fact, across the board, we saw higher concordance. They're suggesting that the patient report probably is more of a gold standard. It's not that we did that badly as clinicians, but the patients did better. But I think that what's perhaps the most indicting was a really nice study uh, that my postdoc uh, at the time, Thomas Atkinson, did, where he did this nice natural experiment uh, where patients who were coming in for chemotherapy were seen by two different clinicians, one for a toxicity check in the office, and then one in the chemotherapy suite. And they were both using the CTCAE, and they were blinded to each other. It was all on paper. And he simply took all these data and looked at the inter-rater agreement between these two oncologists who were rating these symptomatic toxicities within about 10 minutes of each other and found that the, uh, that the correlations were much lower than we would like. These patients, most of them were on clinical trials. Uh, which raises all kinds of data integrity issues. But what we found was that the correlation coefficients were much lower than we would expect for clinical trial data, or really for any data that we would deem as being uh, reliable, suggesting that when I and my colleague down the hall see the same patient on the same day uh, before chemotherapy, that we actually have a, a high tendency to disagree with each other which is a problem because, again, we're interested in highly precise data about the adverse events being experienced by patients so that we can balance risks and harms. So we started doing work within clinical trials. And the first uh, group of studies we did was simply around feasibility because, you know, the skeptics were still around at that time. And they said, well, you know, Ethan, all well and good. You're showing that maybe this has some value. but." You know, my patients are sick. Uh, they have a lot going on. You know, patients aren't going to do this. You know, the reason the clinicians do it is because we're there already in clinic. It's easy for us to report on behalf of our patients. You can't get the patients to do this. So we did many, many feasibility studies in different contexts and essentially found that about in, in the routine care setting, about 85% of patients will self-report their own symptoms or toxicities at any given time point. Uh, and in the clinical trial setting, it's close to 100%. It's somewhere in the 95% range if you do this well. Uh, and this includes in patients who are very ill with advanced disease, including those who are close to death. So it turned out to be highly feasible. So we became then interested in whether <coughs> patients could report serious adverse events because the skeptics were still there. They said, all right, fine, well and good, it's feasible. 
they'll re report these, you know, their, their symptoms or toxicities. But what about when they're really, really sick? Because in clinical trials, all we really care about are the serious adverse events. We don't care about those low-level toxicities, you know, the, for the, the grade one fatigue that the person has for three years. You know, what we care about is that grade three stuff. You know, the patients, they can't do that. We need clinicians for the grade three stuff. So we actually studied this in a number of studies uh, in a number of trials. And this is one uh, that I like. Uh, this was um, from the pivotal trial for oxaliplatin uh, in colorectal cancer, NCCDG 9741. This was a very complicated study. I'm a GU medical oncologist, so I'm sure I'll, I'm going to you know, totally mischaracterized this trial. So I mean, there are several GI people in the room, so please forgive me. But it was a complicated trial. It started with lots of arms. It wound up with three arms, uh, irinotecan, 5-a-few leucovorin, arm 1, 5-a-few uh, oxaliplatin, arm 2, Fulfox, which <clears throat> became the standard and still is a standard, and then IROX, um, which is irinotecan oxaliplatin, which fell by the wayside. And a couple of things about this. So IFL, which is also... Uh, name for my colleague at the time, Len Saltz at Sloan Kettering, was the standard at the time and turned out to be really toxic, like really, really tough regimen. Fulfox was both more efficacious and less toxic, and IROX was sort of somewhere in the middle. And this is a helpful study to illustrate uh, the patient and the clinician reporting because of the toxicity in this trial. There were actually a, there was an excess of unexpected early deaths, particularly in the IFL arm, arm one. And this was associated with the GI syndrome characterized by uh, nausea and abdominal cramping, uh, hospitalization, dehydration, and death, and terrible, terrible diarrhea. And I think it was expected that there would be bad diarrhea because diarrhea is a problem in this population and with all of these regimens. But I think the extent of the diarrhea, which is patient-reported, potentially wasn't really anticipated. And in this study, clinicians reported their diarrhea using the CTCAE at each cycle and patients reported their diarrhea every other cycle using a now legacy tool that nobody really uses anymore called the, the symptom distress scale. Um, and the patients were at a disadvantage because they were doing it every other cycle, not every cycle, and uh, they were doing it at the visit, so you had to be well enough. You couldn't be in the hospital and do it, so it probably underestimates. But nonetheless, it's not a bad approximation. <clears throat> so. This is a Kaplan-Meier curve for diarrhea. Essentially, the lower the curve gets, the more diarrhea there is. Um, and this is the clinician reporting. This is us, uh, who are clinicians or investigators. And what you see here are the three arms. So arm one down at the bottom. So I don't want to wander from the microphone too much. But arm one down here in the blue is IFL, that toxic arm. And you can see there's a lot of diarrhea, right? You can see 20, 30, 40. 40% of patients are experiencing, in this case, severe diarrhea, uh, as reported by the clinicians. And then you see IROX sort of in the middle. Uh, I'm sorry. So this is IFL, right, the bad arm, a lot of diarrhea. And then you see Fulfox up at the top in yellow, which was the best tolerated. Uh, and you see a, a nice delineation between the curves, which is highly statistically significant. So we as clinicians, we didn't do badly, right? We could distinguish between these arms. However, this is the patient reporting. So what's striking here? Well, there is a lot more severe diarrhea, like substantially more. I mean, as you can see here, in that toxic IFL arm, 
Almost 80% of the patients are reporting severe diarrhea by the time they come off trial. And even in the full fox arm shown up in the, in the yellow, there's substantial amounts of severe diarrhea. And just to drive the point home, this is for IFL, that toxic arm alone. The patient reporting is shown in yellow, and the clinician reporting is shown in blue. Now, this study was stopped by the DSMB because of severe diarrhea <coughs> and recalibrated. Uh, and, um, you know, this was a retrospective analysis, but one could imagine, you know, if I was sitting on the DSMB and I saw the yellow curve, you know, I might be more inclined to stop the study earlier than if I saw uh, the blue curve. So just an illustration. <clears throat> so we then became interested in collaborative models because it was clear that the clinicians did have something to add, uh, and, and it is true that sometimes patients may be too simply too ill to report. And we started to think about more of a collaborative reporting model where the clinicians could actually integrate the patient reporting into their practice. And so uh, we did some studies nested in industry phase two trials um, where, again, we used iPad reporting by patients where uh, the patients would come in to the visit when they were enrolled in, in the clinical trial and they would report their own uh, symptomatic toxicities and then that information would be given in real time to the clinicians. And I'll show you a study where we assigned half of the patients to this model where they would report their own toxicities and then we would convey it to the clinicians in real time, also with uh, a tablet. So we use these sort of um, these, these clinical tablets uh, that, are, that, are, that we now a lot of us use for rounding. And we gave them to the investigators and the research nurses. And they would see their patients' reports on a screen in real time, and it looked like this. And I apologize for those of you in the back. It's a little bit small. But this is what the clinicians saw. So the patients saw a screen like the one I showed you before. The clinicians saw this. So they see all the different symptomatic toxicities. They see the grade that their patient assigned. And then they can either agree or they can disagree with their patient. And if they agree, they don't have to do anything. If they disagree, they have to reassign. And then they also assign attribution in real time, which is a topic for another day, but how likely they felt that this toxicity was related to treatment. And a few things were really striking uh, about this study. The first was that uh, this is the only, the first one we did was the only phase two trial uh, at Sloan Kettering that ever had data completeness for toxicities, you know, within you know, a month of the time point of the visit. In fact, it was, we had 100% compliance with this in real time. So it actually improved our ability to generate real-time toxicity data. Uh, but it also generated some very interesting results around agreement. So the first thing that we did was we looked in the second arm, the control arm of the study, which I haven't described to you yet, which was an, an arm where the patient self-reported, but we didn't give it to the clinicians. So we had one arm where the patients reported and the clinicians saw that thing, the other arm where the patients reported, the clinicians didn't see anything. And in that second arm where it wasn't shared, we looked at agreement, just like in those early bars I showed you. And lo and behold, it's really no different. This was probably seven or eight years late after that first study that we did. And we see that the level of agreement is still really pretty lousy, right? I mean, it's like 50%, 49%, 22% for performance status. So, you know, we aren't doing that well agreeing with our patients. But then we looked at the level of agreement for those, pa for those clinicians who saw the patient reports. And this is what we saw. Overall, 96% agreement. So when you put the patient reports in front of us and compel us to use that, 
in real time in order to do our own reporting, the level of agreement is much higher. Now, one might say, well, you know, we're just lazy and we'll just agree with whatever's put in front of us. But it turns out that when we debrief the clinicians, the clinicians felt that this represented reality, you know, that they felt that the patient report was accurate and that's why they agreed. So it's sort of an interesting illustration of using a very simple informatics intervention for information flow or communication in order to raise awareness of clinicians about their patient status. So the NCI became very interested in this work and uh, in 2008 issued uh, the first of three different contracts to develop this patient version of the CTCAE, uh, which I was very privileged uh, to lead over a number of years. And the aims of this were to develop a robust library of patient-reported questions representing symptomatic adverse events for use in cancer trials, uh, to develop software that uh, was paired with this, uh, and then to implement it in national studies to look at feasibility and effort and you know, some of what we now think about in dissemination implementation research more, more formally as far as the, the barriers and facilitators to implementation. So the first thing that we did was we systematically looked at the CTCAE to figure out what actually was amenable to patient self-reporting. Again, it was about 10% of items or 78 items. We developed lay terms through a systematic process in which we reviewed existing questionnaires um, and, um, and uh, uh, I would say, standard methods for questionnaire development. Uh, we created generic item structures and stems. Uh, and uh, I'll show you an illustration of what this looks like. This is, again, I showed you this before. This is the this is, was the standard and really still is. This is clinician reporting, again, the mucositis item. This is what the patient version or the pro-CTCAE looks like. We teased apart the individual concepts that are what we call multi-barreled within these because it turns out it's very difficult for anybody uh, to think about pain and interference with function and whether behavioral changes are required all within the same criterion. And so, we broke this apart into severity, interference with activities, and frequency. And depending on the item, there are different combinations of these attributes. In this case, for mucositis, there are two of them, severity and interference. Sorry, this pointer's not very bright, but here you can see what was the severity of your mouth sores at their worst with a very simple verbal response uh, scale. And here, how much did mouth or throat sores interfere with usual activities? Again, simple response scales. And then these are then mapped into a single composite toxicity grade. Uh, this is a busy slide, but essentially shows the form building software where investigators go in and cre can create customized forms where you pick and choose um, from the 128 individual pro-CTCAE items that are within uh, the library. Uh, this then is interface to clinical trial data management systems for creating calendars for administering. And this is the now, you know, Web 2 or 3.0 version of that earlier kind of questionnaire I showed you where we use skip patterns, you know, if, you know, depending on what the patient's answer, other questions will or won't show up. Uh, and it's available on an automated telephone system uh, as well, which many patients desire. And we find that in the trials we do now that about half of patients will choose you know, web or handheld, um, and about half of patients will choose the automated telephone audio uh, version. The system uh, also generates automated alerts to investigators or clinicians, either for non-adherence or for severe uh, toxicity. This is one example, but they're, you know, it's very customizable. 
so uh, first we uh, did qualitative assessment in a national cognitive interviewing study to uh, assure patient comprehension as well as adequate mapping of the questions to the concepts of interest uh, across a very diverse patient, patient population, including those with low health literacy and education. Um, and uh, use that to adjust uh, the items, and they perform very well. We then uh, quantitatively uh, assess the measurement properties in a national validation study where we looked at validity, reliability, sensitivity, responsiveness, test retest, recall period. Um, and what was very unique about this study without uh, belaboring it uh, is that we individually validated each of 128 items with discrete um, anchors or criteria. So it was essentially like doing 128 validation assessments. And if you think about how we generally validate instruments or assess instruments, we will look at a single composite score, maybe two or three components. So it's a very complicated study. And, um, and the items, partially because they're very simple items um, and have a lot of face validity, performed extremely well, uh, almost universally. Uh, we then looked at feasibility of implementation across multiple uh, cooperative group trials and found very high rates of compliance when electronically administered to patients in about the 90% uh, range, uh, which is high. And as I alluded to on my very first slide, it was publicly released last year. Uh, so it's now been integrated into many clinical trials, and uh, and uh, almost every um, almost every pharmaceutical company that develops oncology drugs um, is now integrating the ProCTCAE into their uh, later phase development uh, programs. This is an example uh, from one drug, uh, cabozatinib, uh, compared to mitoxantrum and metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, for this study, uh, the investigators chose 10 pro-CTCE uh, adverse events. These are selected by the investigators based on expected toxicities. These were reported by patients every three weeks uh, between visits from home using an automated telephone system. And if patients didn't report, then a human tried to track them down to find out why they didn't report and to capture uh, the information. And on average, they had 96% com compliance at every expected time point with self-reporting. Uh, this, again, is busy. I don't expect you to uh, digest all of this, but this shows that the toxicity table from that trial. It includes both CTCAE and pro-CTCAE data. And uh, what I think is, is a helpful take-home point here is that if you look at the differences in toxicities reported between study arms by investigators, none of the symptomatic toxicities were significantly different between arms when reported by investigators. Uh, but three of them were anorexia, diarrhea, and nausea when reporting the pro-CTCAE. So we're getting a more precise between-arm assessment when reported by, uh, by the patients. And this shows uh, another, you know, another way that you can use the patient-reported data. Uh, so here uh, what we're showing is, um, is histograms turned on their sides that show the distribution of severities of score. So here you have essentially mild, moderate, severe, very severe, in this case anorexia, at baseline and then at every successive visit across the population. So we see the proportion of patients with mild, moderate, severe, very severe. Here for cabozatinib, which is the experimental arm, here for mitoxantrum, which is the control. And there are a couple of really interesting things here. First of all, there is a lot of anorexia at baseline, right? In both arms, we see that 75, 80% of patients 
have some degree of anorexia, in some case, moderate or severe. But what's also interesting here is what's happening between the two arms, which is that in the cabozatinib arm, it really does appear to be getting worse in the distribution. Right here by the end, you have a lot of patients who have very severe anorexia. Whereas here in the mitoxantrone arm, although it's still present, most of it is mild or moderate, and by the end, almost all of it is mild. Again, the N is much smaller towards the end of the trial. But this gives a very granular understanding of the patient experience over time, suggesting that really in mitoxantrone, the drug is better tolerated from the perspective of anorexia uh, than with cabozatinib. And just to drive the point home, when you compare the cumulative incidence of the toxicities, which is the common way we assess toxicities in trials, when you look at the clinician grading using the CTCAE, almost no 3-plus anorexia was reported, 1.7% in the mitoxantrone arm and 5.3% uh, for, I'm sorry, 1.7% in cabozatinib and 53 for mitoxantrone, which is not significant. But it goes in the wrong direction, right? The drug was more toxic in this arm, but less of it's being reported. When you look at the patient reporting, it's 38% versus 15 and highly statistically significant. So I would argue that this is a much more precise way to understand how patients are experiencing product. Okay, so what are we doing now? So uh, we're really very focused on implementation and dissemination. Uh, there's been quite a bit of work over the last couple of years developing best practices for how to implement this tool in clinical trials, how to analyze and show the data, how should this be shown in papers, should it be part of the main manuscript, how should this be shown in drug labels. Um, and, uh, and so uh, there's a lot of close work with regulatory agencies and with the pharmaceutical uh, industry around this. And I would encourage anybody who's interested in this, please, uh, if anyone would like to uh, become involved or evaluate ways to display the data or disseminate it, I would really welcome that. And I had some interesting conversations with people today about, um, about potential projects. So I just want to turn very briefly in the last few minutes to clinical care, because I know that there's been interest here, like there is in many health systems, in integrating patient-reported outcomes into routine care. Uh, and I've been focusing mostly on the use of PROs in clinical research, but there is an opportunity to collect this information systematically from our patients in order to improve how we manage uh, symptoms. Um, and so there have been prior studies evaluating uh, these electronic data capture systems for collecting patient-reported outcomes, and they have been shown to improve communication and to improve symptom management to some extent. There's actually been seminal work uh, here, uh, much of it by Gene Nelson, who's really done some foundational work around PROs, um, but also Carolyn Kerrigan uh, has done really some of the key work integrating PROs into clinical practice and surgery and into the, uh, into the EHR. Um, and so I developed an interest in measuring the impact of collecting PROs routinely on clinical outcomes. And so uh, we developed a randomized trial. Uh, this was a single center, large randomized trial uh, that was done at Sloan Kettering uh, in order to assess how clinical outcomes are impacted by collecting PROs in clinical practice and conveying that information to providers. So 766 patients receiving chemotherapy for advanced or metastatic solid tumors were randomly assigned either 
to self-report 12 common CTCAE symptoms during their cancer treatment uh, at and between visits. And then email alerts were sent to their nurses uh, when the patients reported severe symptoms or worsening symptoms. And we compared that to standard care, no patient reporting. And we looked at a whole host of outcomes. So uh, what we observed, first of all, is that over very, very long periods of time, some of these patients were enrolled in this study for like four years. Um, patients had sustained self-reporting. This shows up to the 40th clinic visit. We can see that there's some downturn over time, but in general, you know, 75% of patients at any given time were reporting uh, their PROs, the expected uh, time points. What we also found was that nurses were highly responsive to this information. When looking at these email alerts that went to nurses, nurses responded more than three-quarters of the time with clinical actions. This included prescriptions uh, of supportive medications, referrals to the emergency room, uh, new imaging, and dose modifications or chemotherapy changes. So the first outcome that we looked at was quality of life change from baseline uh, to six months uh, using uh, the EQ5D. Um, and uh, the results are shown here. So first we looked at any amount of change between zero and six months. Uh, each of these shows uh, the proportion of patients who had an improvement in quality of life, no change, and worsening. This bar is usual care, and this is the intervention. And what we see is that with usual care at six months, 18% of patients had an improved quality of life. And with the PRO intervention, 34% had improved quality of life, which was highly statistically significant. And uh, that was accompanied by 53% you know, worsening versus 38% worsening. We looked at a six-point threshold, which is the clinically meaningful change uh, on that tool. And we found uh, similar, uh, similar patterns. We then looked at utilization of services. We first looked at emergency room visits and found that the cumulative incidence of emergency room, room visits went down with the PRO intervention. When we looked over a year's period, 41% of patients were admitted to the emergency room in usual care compared to 34% with the PRO intervention, and this was statistically significant. This shows hospital admissions. Uh, this P was not statistically significant, but we saw a similar uh, pattern. We've recently looked at overall survival. This result is embargoed and will be reported at the ASCO annual meeting uh, in Chicago uh, in a couple of months. Uh, but we analyzed these uh, with seven years of median follow-up after two-thirds of the patient population, sadly, had uh, passed away. So this result will be uh, forthcoming. So what are we doing now uh, in this area? So we're repeating this in a national study. We're running a PCORI-funded national randomized trial in which we're comparing uh, patient-reported outcomes uh, in, with a symptom management pathway attached to it versus uh, usual care. This will be a 1,000-patient cluster randomized trial uh, across the U.S. and Canada. We're also very interested in how PROs can be used in quality assessment, because if you think about this, if we are collecting patient-reported outcomes from our patients in routine care, we can then aggregate that information to understand how well we are managing our patient's symptoms. One might, for example, look between practices at management of post-chemotherapy nausea or management of pain among patients who have uh, metastatic disease to bone. Uh, so uh, we're conducting also a PCORI-funded uh, study in partnership with ASCO uh, and NCQA, uh, where we are both developing and implementing patient-reported quality metrics for symptoms uh, in cancer practices. 
So in conclusion, patient self-reporting can enhance symptom monitoring in clinical trials and in clinical practice. It can improve our understanding of the patient experience with cancer treatment and engage patients in processes of research and their care. But to me, as a health services person, it demonstrates how hard it is to change a very simple process, even if it makes a lot of intuitive sense. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was really great. I think we have um, a little bit of time for questions. I have a question. Uh, yeah, how much longer does it take to do the process? Is there any impact on clinician throughput? Yeah, it's a great question. So in the single center randomized study at Sloan Kettering, we looked at room time. And there was no difference in the amount of time in, in the rooms for patients. So we didn't know what to expect. We didn't videotape encounters, but we did some debriefing of clinicians to try to understand if maybe rather than having more general symptom screening kinds of conversations, there were more targeted questions that coned down on those things that lit up in the, in the reports. But it, it's unclear to me. But there was no difference in the time in, in the room. Yeah, we also looked at uh, the number of uh, nursing phone calls with patients. Uh, and curiously, we didn't find a difference there either. Uh, we actually expected there might be more phone calls with the intervention, but there was no difference. So perhaps just different content. One valuable side effect is of this movement that you're sort of seeding the EMR Thanks. It depends on your definition of good data. Uh, you know, but, yeah, I think any data. Yeah, I think certainly there's there's any data. Yeah, you know, like a lot of data in the EHR or the EMR, you know, the problem with PRO data is that it's not systematically collected in many cases, right? So if we are only collecting it, say, before patients come in, then we're subject to when the patients are coming in. So I'm more of a fan of regularly collected information, whether it's every two weeks or every three weeks, you know, maybe also triggered by visits. Um, but I agree with you. You know, I think that the, the dream here is that we would have granular information about the patient's subjective experience during their treatment that we can aggregate with other data in the HR uh, to really understand the totality of, you know, the care experience. But I, I think it's nascent. But that's, that, is, that is the hope. And part of that is working with the vendors to make the PRO functionality a little bit more user-friendly. Well, that does seem to be a limitation. We do have some uh, uh, examples here where there's been a lot of this in some clinics and some pushback. Okay. Uh, maybe not for toxicity. I would think participation would be wrong. Yes, I think par parsimony is, is a virtue. I agree with you. So um, I mean, I've had a couple, couple of conversations this morning about this. This is really hard to implement. I mean, rolling out PROs in a clinical practice is really, really 
difficult. I think it's one thing to do in the controlled setting of me running a study and having data managers who go into clinic to engage people, but actually figuring out how to engage both patients and clinicians and staff to do this, it's very, very difficult. And I think that's the, bar I think the barriers we face now are around the technology because I think the EHRs do not do this well. The patient portal, PRO functionalities are, you know, they're just, just cumbersome and difficult and it leads to non-compliance. But I think also the workflow is not set up to do this, so, yeah. Did you find that the increased incidence of, of adverse events and toxicity changed treatment decisions for patients? So, you know, when you showed that all those toxicities for some of, you know, one of those medications you showed in the very beginning, I was like, oh, it's a lot already. I mean, does increasing all of them by 10% or 15% or 20%, does it, does it change patients' decisions as to whether to go forward with the chemotherapy or not? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think there are a number of ways to think about that. One is, if patients are, are we actually helping people to become more aware of their symptoms or the kinds of symptoms that we think about for decision making? So that's one. The second, which actually comes up more often than, than what you asked is, you know, are the clinicians going to be more prone to dose modify or take patients off treatment? Are the patients going to be afraid to report a toxicity because of the concern that their oncologist is going to take them off drug? Um, but, you know, I, but I, I don't know the answer to your question. I think that would be something that would be rather easy to study um, qual qualitatively. What do you think? Uh, well, I know I'm a surgeon, so, I, you know, I don't have this patient so much. Um, but I know that the um, impact of talking about the side effects of surgery has, uh, does have an impact on patients and, and what, the, what their decisions are. So I would... I would assume it would to some degree. Um, so are you talking about feeding back the symptom information from past patients to future patients, or do you mean making a patient, or you mean based on the individual? Part of shared decision making with a patient if you, when you're trying to figure out whether they should go with that or not. We have the conversation all the time in terms of side effects of surgery, and then, you know, and that's, you know, I'm just thinking in my own mind how a lot of that data is captured, you know, too, and it's, um, but, you know, when we have this, we have, also we have this, a lot of times we have discussions about, you know, here are all the side effects, do you want to do surgery A or, you know, procedure B or Yeah, so I agree with that. I mean, I, you know, more toxicities are reported by patients than by clinicians, and so the drugs look more toxic, which brings up, a, there are a lot of issues with, with that. Um, and so there are going to be more toxicities to report to people at baseline. But the truth is, like, the drugs I use are toxic. I mean, they are, right? And not to understand that and not to be able to explain that to people when they make decisions, I think, is probably a disservice to all of us. So. You know, the extent to which people may change their opinions when we improve the accuracy of symptom information about drugs, I, I don't know. I mean, the adjunct to this is that we'll also be able to understand the symptomatic benefits better, you know, if we do this better. So I think you can see it both ways. When you enrolled 800 yeah, patients, did you, did you exclude some for being... Um, so weak and tired out before they started that they would that take very little to make their fatigue so extreme that they can't function Yeah. So in that study, we took all comers, and in a national study, we're taking all comers. And in the national study, we're actually enriching for multiple groups of people, including people who have very advanced disease and poor performance status at baseline. Not in that study, but in other studies, we focused on patients who have you know, very, you know, who have 
uh, very diminished performance status, you know, at baseline, um, to, to try to understand really more feasibility, which we found. Why do you ask? Well, it seems like you have all kinds of, people um, have all kinds of complicated illnesses already when they come to cancer, and uh, each one is an individual and it's hard to clump them together. Absolutely. No, I agree. I, I mean, it, it, there's a lot of heterogeneity in these populations, but, um, you know, yes, I agree. You had a question? You mentioned using this for quality measurement. Um, when, what do you think about this kind of data or these kinds of PROs being sent out directly by a payer or somebody who wants to measure quality as opposed to coming through through the people who, the, the doctors who are performing the care? Because if, if you have, if you have Medicare sending this out to patients, well, then, you, then you're cutting out the, the part of the loop where the practice can feed back and do something about it. Yeah. Uh, is that a tension with using it for quality? I, I just make the tools. You know, I think with quality metrics, there are a lot of different ways that, you know, they can be collected and, and used, and there are different stakeholders who want the information for different reasons. Personally, I think that it's superior if the... You know, if the individual entity is collecting the information, on the other hand, you know, our patients move between providers, you know, and systems, and so there's something to be said for, you know, following the patient rather than being anchored to the individual practice. I think it depends on what you're going to use it for. I don't really have a strong opinion about this. I think as a provider, I'd rather it you know, be, be the provider organization. But there are examples, very successful examples, uh, where the surveys have been collected, you know, by, by, the, by, the, by the payer or by the system, right? So in the UK, there's this PROMS program. It's not in oncology, but it's been extremely successful uh, in, an, you know, following a number of surgical procedures where the NHS is sending out questionnaires to tens of thousands of people. Um, and having very high response rates. They actually contracted out, but that's all being done centrally, not by the individual practice. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? I was involved in a project where there was concern that if you elicit, if, you, if a patient gives you a, a symptom that's worrisome to the patient, um, is, there, is there then some obligation to refer that to somebody who can do something about it? Um, but I mean, I. I, while I, I also I still think it's useful to collect the information, so I it seems like a, it's better it's better to be asking about this, and then we have to figure out how to. Again, it depends on the purpose. So you know, the Medicare Advantage plans send out you know the what is it the MHOS right to their beneficiaries. They send out surveys to you know thousands and thousands of people each year, and it's not fed back to the providers. I mean, they use it simply. I mean, they, they wanted to use it for their, you know, multi-star rating system for quality, but instead it's been used by health services researchers linked to, you know, linked to, you know, linked to SEER. But um, I, I think there are a lot of ways to do it. Anyway. All right, I'll ask the, the last question, maybe, and uh, tagging on the Gates question is, we know that our patients get questions directly um, from other entities like HCAPs. So do you think that PROs link with HCAP scores? Yeah, I don't know. Someone else asked me that question today. We'll find out because we're asking both in our national study. Um, Is that in so, as well? 
Well, we haven't done the study yet. That's a study that's uh, that's that's a study that that uh, we're about to open. Probably will open in about two months. So we're collecting both patient experiential questions, HCAPS questions, and cancer CAPS questions, as well as the PROs. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to think about how they might relate and why they might relate and what. What's your hypothesis? Related or not related? You know, experience versus outcomes. Uh, you know, first of all, at a place like Dartmouth, you're going to have such a ceiling effect on your HCAP scores because they all love their providers. Um, there's not a lot of variability in those scores, we find. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I think that what, I think it depends on the individual question, right? So we're very interested in questions like, uh, around managing symptoms and interact communication between visits. And I suspect that when you use a PRO tool where the provider is being prompted to call the patient between visits, probably those individual items will improve. But I suspect that overall satisfaction questions with care probably won't budge. Yeah, like noise or something. Yeah, because people like their providers one or the other. And, and the thing is, you know, I mean, one thing that we did find in the single center study, because we did have some HCAPS questions in there, is that um, even the most symptomatic patients had extremely high satisfaction with their providers. Uh, and that was durable throughout the continuum. It's not like people got more symptomatic. They got sicker over time and became less satisfied with, with their care. If anything, the opposite. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. It's a good question. Yeah. Thank you so much. Sir. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody. And thank you.